people always tell you to follow your dreams, but what does that mean? Where do your dreams go? Why wouldn't you follow them? What if you don't know what your dream is yet? Last night, I dreamed that I adopted a hundred salamanders. Okay, that's not the kind of dream you should follow. We're talking about the big dreams here. Like, when I was a kid, I dreamed of traveling the world, but I never thought I would get the chance. Well, now I'm here with you, and we've both been able to travel around the world for our work as scientists. Oh, okay, I see. Like, a dream to one day explore faraway planets. Bingo. I'm Gabby Salazar. And I'm Anaza Alam. And we're National Geographic Explorers. And we get the question all the time, how do you become an explorer? And what does an explorer do? Well, we're going to tell you. Today, we're talking to a planetary scientist who studies planets and other objects in our solar system. So you were right to bring up faraway planets, Gabby. Did you know that the highest peak on Mars is three times taller than Mount Everest? Wow, I didn't. But I bet our guest today will know all about that. That's right, because Sarah Stewart Johnson is a planetary scientist, a person who studies planets and other objects in outer space. Okay, so I know that you, Munaza, also study objects in outer space, specifically exoplanets. But you're an astronomer, right? Right. I study exoplanets, which are planets outside the solar system. But other astronomers study things like stars or galaxies or the gas in between stars and planets and galaxies. I get it. Sounds like there's a lot out there that requires us to study it. But here's how Sarah describes her job. I love thinking about space. I've spent most of my career searching for life in the universe, for life that's beyond Earth, beyond our own planet. Right now, Earth is the only planet in the universe that we know holds life. Well, I get that you and I are alive, right? And so is the possum that lives under my house. But life isn't just people and animals. It's also trees and plants and even bacteria that's way too small to see, right? Right. And the things that are alive leave these clues, certain molecules, chemicals, or minerals, called biosignatures. And that's what Sarah is looking for, these fingerprints of life. We look for traces of life on planets like Mars, which is our near neighbor, And then we also do work on icy moons of Jupiter and Saturn. There are these moons that are out in the outer solar system that have liquid water oceans beneath a layer of ice like Europa and Enceladus. And there are also moons that have lakes of ethane and methane on their surface, uh, like Titan. Wait, did I hear Mars? Yes. Sarah sometimes works with NASA helping to develop instruments that the rovers use to explore Mars. I know about rovers. People can't go to Mars yet. There's too much radiation from the sun, which can hurt humans. Plus, it would take seven months to arrive, and that's a long time to be in a spacecraft. So scientists send robots called rovers instead. Sarah helped with the Spirit and Opportunity rovers that landed in 2004 and the Curiosity rover that landed in 2012. Wow. I'm starstruck. Or maybe... Planet struck? Is that a thing? It's a thing now, because Sarah focuses mainly on the planet itself and doesn't just study in a lab. She visits places all over Earth that are similar to faraway planets. When I was doing fieldwork at an observatory in Hawaii, I got to see one of the places where they test a lot of the equipment before they're used on real missions. Sarah told us about one of the other places. So several of the bodies in our solar system are really, really cold, for example... 
um, and places that are also really dry, like Mars. Mars is just the ultimate polar desert. And so one place that my lab does research is down in Antarctica. Uh, so one of our field sites is the dry valleys of Antarctica. It's this amazing place where there's been no rain for over two million years. Um, and there used to be these giant lakes there and there's still these ancient shorelines from those lakes. And we've spent a lot of time digging around in the sediments and really taking samples, trying to figure out how we can best detect traces of life. Um, and we've actually got this other field site just on the complete opposite side of the continent in Queen Maud Land, this permanently ice-covered lake. Uh, it's called Lake Untersea, and we've been studying the waters there in its deep, dark, anoxic basin as an analog for the moon Enceladus. And Enceladus orbits around Saturn. Like Europa, Enceladus is a moon that's out in the far reaches of the solar system, and it's permanently covered in ice. And so we know places like these moons have under ice oceans, liquid water oceans. And it's been really fascinating to investigate these otherworldly places and especially how life might harvest energy in environments like these, like in that deep, dark, anoxic basin of Lake Untersea. So there are planets out there that we think are just covered in ice with a liquid ocean underneath? Oh yeah. Be straight with me, Munaza. Are there mermaid aliens? <laughs> I mean, probably not. But if there were, we wouldn't know. We just need to know more about these planets. On her journey to discover what life might look like on other planets, she's also traveled to Iceland. Oh, Iceland's an amazing place. It's this landscape that's been shaped by the interaction of glaciers and volcanoes, much like Mars. And so if you get up into the central volcanic highlands, you have this terrain that feels utterly Mars-like. I think it's really reflecting what some parts of early Mars might have looked like. That all sounds very glamorous and adventurous. But that journey to Iceland wasn't so easy for Sarah. That's because Sarah is also a mom. She has a son and daughter. And sometimes being a mom and an explorer is tough. Like when she was preparing for this trip to Iceland, her son was just five years old and her babysitter fell through. And I do remember at the very last little outpost where the paved roads end, um, you know, there's this one last gas station and, and there was this guy there uh, when we went in to get our final fill up of gas and he was just looking at me and my colleague Kate from the Applied Physics Lab. And he was like, you know, you guys cannot go up that road. No, 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 no. You do, you know, you need to turn around. And we were just like, what are you talking about? We will be fine. Hmm, that seems a little rude. Well, the terrain was pretty rough, but Sarah and her friend knew they could do it. The train was not super easy. You know, we had to cross there a couple of streams. We had to be careful that the water didn't flood the truck engines. And, and we did have to take those turns carefully. Then once they got to the campsite, Sarah had to manage both the science and her son. We spent a lot of time hiking around to get to different places to sample. And my son had these little legs. And, and I just remember carrying him, honestly, like a lot of the time, especially in these really steep stretches. But, oh, he had so much fun. We had so much fun. He helped us collect samples. He helped us set up our gear. He also <laughs> took all these photos with my camera documenting the trip and they just made me laugh so hard when I went back to look at them later. 
Oh, but you know, it all came together. The trip was really successful. We were out there, you know, doing all these experiments, trying to figure out the composition of these crazy microbial organisms that live in this extreme environment, trying to do it in real time. Uh, and the results were really incredible. Wow. How cool would it be to go on an expedition at five years old, right? Bringing her son into the field ended up being a great experience for both of them, which is amazing because the night that Sarah brought her son home from the hospital was also the night that the Curiosity rover landed on Mars and she couldn't be there. Oh, these Mars missions, you know, they don't come around that often. There are just certain launch opportunities, you know, the planets swing together on the same side of the sun and then they swing apart again. And I do remember that night. I remember watching the landing and just sort of wondering, you know, am I, am I actually going to be able to do this? Am I going to be able to be a Mars scientist and the mother of a tiny infant? You know, here's this little person with these absolute needs who, you know, like this is, this was like my new roommate. This was the rest of my life and I couldn't let him down. I mean, it felt like the most important thing I'd ever done, sort of becoming a mother. And I, I guess there were these moments, especially near the beginning, when I had these doubts, I was like, how am I going to be able to do this? Like, how do you do research and do field work and run a lab and be a good mother? Sarah figured it out. She loves being an explorer and she loves being a mom. And one thing I keep thinking about is that by bringing her son to the field, he sees his mom in action as a scientist in this extreme environment and she can become a role model for him when he pursues his dreams. I had great role models in my family growing up and that really made all the difference. Me too. Role models and mentors have played a huge role in my path into science. But now I have to know, what's the one thing Sarah has to take on a successful expedition? Actually, hand warmers. Hand warmers, what a cool, well, hot answer. You know, I've come to think that there are just this absolutely critical piece of scientific infrastructure. I have this great picture from Antarctica where we just could not get this little instrument to run until we had just surrounded it by hand warmers, put them above and below it, just all around it. Oh, so they're not just for you, but for the instruments too. <laughs> totally. They come in handy all the time. I'll tell you, and it's not just for you. It's also for the science. We, we've actually got big stacks of them in the lab. Before we go, what advice does Sarah have for people who want to explore outer space? Uh, so I say, welcome, come on in. You know, there are just so many different ways to contribute. And we really need people from all different backgrounds, from all different walks of life. You know, exploring space is super hard, but it's also just incredibly powerful. It can help us answer these really fundamental questions like who are we and where did we come from and why is there something and not nothing and did that something from nothing did it happen once or did it happen time and again and you don't have to be just an astronaut to answer those these questions you know there are just so many cool ways to get involved in space exploration you know people can do it through fundamental science, through robotic exploration, through telescopic observations. You know, we need all kinds of people, biologists and physicists and chemists and geologists, computer scientists, we need engineers. Like we really need everyone coming together if we wanna solve these almost impossible problems. 
you know, like how, how do you actually get a little mobile scientific laboratory up to the surface of a, another planet? That's something that is almost impossible. And yet, look, like it's, it's been done. There is a machine that was built with human hands driving around the surface of Mars right now. And that still just completely blows my mind. Thanks for listening, Future Explorers. If you want to learn more about Sarah Stewart Johnson and her work, check out the book No Boundaries about women scientists and explorers. It was written by me, Gabby Salazar, and my fellow explorer, Claire Fiesler. And it's available wherever books are sold. That's it for this week, but join us next week when we talk to a photographer who is on a mission. How We Explore is hosted by Gabby Salazar and Manaza Alam. This podcast was written by Allison Shaw and Emily Everhart. Rebecca Cunningham is our audio producer, and Claire Fiesler is our editorial consultant and field recording specialist. Music composed by Ijo Leo, with guitar by Axel Borgmo. Curtis Cross is our audio engineer. Gabby Salazar is our producer, and Emily Everhart is our executive producer. Special thanks to all interviewees for agreeing to participate in this project. 